0: Hello and welcome to this episode of iLoop. In a change of format, today it's going to be just me. And there's two things I'd like to share with you. The first of which is a poem that I wrote back in May 2020 when we were still in the midst of the COVID lockdown. Now I have to tell you that I'm not a poet and generally my writing is not in the form of poetry. But on that particular day, I felt plugged into some deep well of creativity and these words flowed through me and I felt was speaking my truth and so today I'm sharing it here with you. The poem is called Being Me. I'm not a poet, the words come to me when I open my heart and set myself free. How does it feel when I look at me? All I can see is a flawed human being. Until I connect with the child I once was, spontaneous and playful, oblivious of my flaws. Tired of being looked at, craving to be seen, to meet that one person who gets where I've been. I ask myself this question, why do I overshare? Is it in the hope that someone will care? Be vulnerable, they say, share all your pain. Be careful, I think, it might all be in vain. Pain and struggles abound, challenges galore. I'll stick with my own, not swap them for yours. People will judge, based on what they see, not knowing it's a mask that hides the real me. The mask is no lie, it's who I want to be. In the future I'm creating, that person is me. How will I travel from here to there? The journey is long with no time to spare. Will I have companions or go on my own? Fear not, a voice tells me, you're never alone. Everything I'll ever need is held inside of me. I must go deep within and learn how to be. There's a vast universe that is my friend. Love, acceptance and belief are vital in the end. You are unique and amazing with so much to give. Learning to love yourself will change how you live. My story is yours and I see yours in mine. This poem is both personal and universal at the same time. And now I would like to read to you a chapter from my book, Leading Ladies, which was published back in 2016. And I'm going to read to you chapter one, which is my story. I spent 20 years in an industry that is all about managing money. I was a fund manager and my job was to invest our clients' money. At the end of 2014, I decided to call time on a job that I had once thought would be for life. In the months leading up to that decision, it had dawned on me that too many things had changed. It was time to be brave. I was greatly influenced by Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I hoped to spend my career break developing Habit Seven, Sharpen the saw. According to the author, sharpening the saw means preserving and enhancing the greatest asset you have, you. It means having a balanced program for self-renewal in the four areas of your life, physical, social emotional, mental and spiritual. As you renew yourself in each of these four areas, you create growth and change in your life. Sharpening the saw keeps you fresh so you can continue to practice the other six habits. You increase your capacity to produce and better handle the challenges around you. Without this renewal, the body becomes weak, the mind mechanical, the emotions raw, and the spirit insensitive, and the person selfish. It took me several years to find the right job, I used to wake up each working day looking forward to what the stock markets had in store for me. I thrived on the fact that no two days were ever the same. I had the opportunity to learn new skills, master different roles and carve out my own niche from where I could add value. The stock market over the years had provided a recurring lesson in humility. I had faced three major bear markets in my time each one teaching me new lessons and providing a valuable perspective. I met clever, hard-working people at the top of their game who represented their organizations that have changed the way in which we live our lives. I learned something new every day. In my capacity as fund manager, I was sometimes able to influence the way they ran their businesses. How many jobs are there that give you that sort of privilege power and responsibility. One of the many rewarding aspects of my job was watching companies I had invested in achieve the potential I believed they possessed. But I never grew up dreaming of becoming a fund manager or working in finance. In fact, where it all began could not have been further from where I am today. The early years, living with change. I grew up in India and came from a family of servicemen. My paternal grandfather served in the Royal Indian Navy. My father and two of his three brothers also served in the Indian Navy and Indian Army. For the sake of her children's education, my grandmother lived in Mumbai whilst my grandfather traveled to wherever his job took him. It can't have been easy for her spending many years in a one-bedroom flat with five children, especially as four of them were boisterous boys. There are stories of how she had to tie the furniture down to stop her children from dragging chairs or tables to the balcony that overlooked onto a busy road from three floors above. My grandfather was an austere man of deep integrity, his own experience of spending many years away from his family was the reason why he pioneered a centralised educational standard, which aimed at helping families of travelling service personnel in India. This resulted in schools being set up in major cities across the country that followed the same national curriculum with standard textbooks that enabled children to join from any other school, even if they were partway through their academic year. These were named Kendriya Vidyale, or central schools. My brother and I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my grandfather and his colleagues because they made it possible for us to travel with our father and mother every two two or three years with very little disruption to our education, to places where his job as a naval officer took him. When you live with so much change, you experience many things that leave no lasting impression. Even though I remember some things very clearly, like they happened yesterday, there are great swathes of other things and details of people who touched my life that have now simply disappeared from my memory. I remember a maths teacher at a school in Delhi who took an irrational dislike towards me. She enjoyed humiliating me by calling me to the front of the class and getting me to work out a problem on the blackboard knowing full well that I would fail. I don't remember her name, but I will never forget how she made me feel, fearful and ashamed. I told my mother about this teacher, hoping she would tell her to back off. Instead, my mother suggested that I focus on improving myself by spending 10 to 15 minutes doing maths after school. You can just imagine how well that suggestion went down with a 12-year-old me. At first I was bitterly disappointed that my mother was not willing to fight for me. Her reasoning was that if I got better at maths the teacher would leave me alone and so I had no choice but to acquiesce. A few weeks later when I did particularly well on a test my teacher turned to me and asked me if I had cheated. But more importantly just as my mother had said once I was no longer a soft target she stopped picking on me. I moved to a school in Mumbai in the next academic year, where I had one of my best ever maths teachers, whose name I do remember. Mr Balani, with his happy smiling face, instilled in me a love for the subject that lives with me even today. That experience as a young pre-teenager taught me one of life's greatest lessons. Choose your battles with care. Sometimes you can win, simply by making yourself stronger so the enemy has no appetite to fight you anymore. Coming to England, an accidental immigrant. Growing up, I had no desire to live abroad, nor did I have any aspirations of a foreign education. Many of my fellow students were busy taking entrance exams that would enable them to study in the West with a scholarship. It was a gateway to a world of opportunity, meritocracy and abundance. These educational migrants were unlikely to return home. I didn't want to be one of them. I was at a family wedding in Mumbai when I bumped into an elderly gentleman who was well known in our community for being a very good astrologer. He was trusted because he read horoscopes as a hobby, never for money. All he needed was your exact time and date of birth, and based on that information, he was able to read what the stars had in store for you. His guidance was particularly useful when parents were trying to find a suitable match for their sons and daughters. This was often the starting point in a process that could result in nuptials if the boy and girl liked each other. My parents had handed my details to him in the hope that I would let them find me a suitable husband. Anyway, I digress. I was making small talk with the said gentleman when he told me that he saw me working with money and that I would live abroad. I smiled politely and thanked him for this, but privately I thought he was finally losing the plot. I saw myself living in India and working in sales and marketing once I had completed my postgraduate studies. The Indian Institutes of Management, IIMs, were amongst the elite business schools in those days. And by some miracle, I had managed to get a place in two of these. There were only four of them in the country at that time, in Ahmedabad, Bangalore, Calcutta and Lucknow. I had a choice between Calcutta and Bangalore and I chose the latter for its cooler climate. Upon graduation from IAMB in 1991, my fellow graduates joined the Milk Rounds, an opportunity for companies to recruit some of the brightest and most promising business minds in India into their graduate trainee programs. I chose not to participate and instead decided to join my parents in London where my father was Naval Attaché in the Indian High Commission. Armed with my new business qualifications, I had no doubt that I would land a job in London and be able to return within a year to India with some British experience under my belt. It was not long before I realised that no one in the UK cared a jot about my qualifications and didn't see them as a reason to give me a job over and above the many thousands of British graduates who were seeking work in the depth of a full-blown recession. And who could blame them? I was wetter behind the ears than a soggy marshland. It was a chastening experience. I began contemplating a return to India with nothing to show for my stay in England, other than the hours spent watching daytime TV, reading books from my local library, and a road trip to Europe with my family. I wondered if I would make history, not in a good way, by being the only IIM graduate who failed to get a job even back in her own home country. It was a bleak time and I started to contemplate my life as a failure even before it had really begun. It was during those dark days in October 1991 that I happened to come across an opportunity to work in the insurance industry as a sales representative. I was ecstatic. It didn't matter that I would be working on a commission-only basis or that I would be cold-calling complete strangers. It didn't even matter that I knew nothing about the financial products I was going to sell. There would be training for that. After months of waiting, I now had a reason to get up in the morning. Finally, here was an opportunity to learn, to earn and put some work experience on my CV, which would be invaluable when I return home to get a proper job. I soon discovered that I was setting out with a clear disadvantage, an Indian accent that proved a dead giveaway over the phone. Even if the person at the other end of the phone was feeling kind towards a pesky cold caller, my accent betrayed my foreignness and my lack of understanding of British telephone etiquette. I have always been musical and good at picking up new accents. Learning to sound more British was one of the first lessons in a long list of things I learnt in the coming years. I doggedly carried on in my job, regardless of being rather hopeless at selling. I studied the products I was meant to sell in excruciating detail, but remained unclear about their merits to the buyer. I was not too troubled by my failure, as I was not planning to make a career of this. I considered it a character-building exercise, with a finite end date. Then one day, I met someone who changed the entire trajectory of my life. I had been in my job for about four months when I was introduced to a new manager who had been headhunted from another insurance firm. He seemed self-assured, had an easy manner and an infectious laugh. He was of Indian origin, but spoke like a proper Brit and had anglicised his Sikh first name. This, to my overly patriotic Indian mind, was sacrilege, a sign of someone who was ashamed of his roots. I was further irritated by the fact that my boss had so freely offered him the use of my desk, presumably because I was the most junior and therefore the most dispensable member of staff. But he very graciously refused to uproot me from where I was seated and found himself another desk. Over the following weeks, I got to know him better and discovered he was like no man I had ever met before. He was my manager, but he also became my mentor and friend. Someone who believed in me more than I believed in myself. He saw things in me that I could not see. He taught me things that have stayed with me even to this day. Despite being born and brought up in London, his heart was deeply Indian. His spoken Punjabi was old-fashioned and melodic quite unlike what I had heard in India. He was not ashamed to speak Hindi, even if it was bitty and laced with a Punjabi accent. He was a man completely comfortable in his own skin and truly at home in a country that was foreign to me. He was also in a long-term relationship and had a daughter, a most gorgeous, bubbly little girl who clearly adored him and he her. So this was no Bollywood love story. My parents were horrified when I told them I had met a man who was already in a relationship and had a child. They remained vehemently opposed to the idea of us being together until they met his daughter. They melted when they saw the lovely interaction he had with his child. This was not a man who was going to abandon his daughter, even if he was no longer going to be living with her mother. We got married in May 1993, in a simple but beautiful Sikh ceremony, attended by a handful of close family and friends. After we were married, I had a quiet moment to myself when it hit me that that my life would never be the same again. It was like hitting a reset button, not knowing what would happen next. Having never wanted to live anywhere but in India, I was now a married woman with a ready-made family in a foreign country with none of my old friends. What's more, I had almost no immediate family once my parents returned to India. And zero career prospects. But I did have one thing that mattered more than anything else. A life partner who believed in me and loved me enough to give up the life he knew. And for that reason, I was happy to give up my country, my family and everything else that had been connected to my life before. Career building, starting from zero. With no real career plan or relevant British qualifications, I was at a loss as to where to begin. So I registered myself at an agency for temporary jobs. Fortunately, there was no shortage of these, as long as I was prepared to do the most menial of admin tasks such as filing, data input, answering the telephone, working in a call centre or being a receptionist. The next four years were deeply formative ones for me. As a temporary worker, you are in a rather special place. You can be friendly without really seeking to make friends and be professional without appearing to be too keen to progress within the firm. As long as you show up and do your job, No one really pays attention to you. I became computer literate on the job, despite having never used a computer before. I also learned to recognise and appreciate British humour, and I assimilated into the local working culture in my own way. It was a perfect grounding for me to observe, and I was able to absorb things that no amount of money or special schooling could ever have taught me. You may wonder why I persisted with temping for so long. I wanted to find a job that was the one for me, one that I would love and want to stay in for years to come. In the absence of such a job opportunity, I thought it would be best to keep on temping in the hope that each successive assignment would take me closer to the right permanent job. There were times when I despaired, I couldn't believe that after all my years of education back in India, I had amounted to so little. At these times, I was buoyed by my husband's continued faith that I would find my true calling someday, and he willed me not to give up. Alongside working, I had started studying for investment management qualifications, which I prepared for in my own time at home. Thanks to a dear friend of my husband's, I spent many months getting work experience as a research analyst at his fund management firm that specialised in emerging markets. With some relevant qualifications and work experience under my belt, I started applying to jobs in the City of London, the financial heartbeat of the UK. There were many failed interviews, but every rejection taught me a new lesson in what not to do in front of a prospective employer. It was only later in life that I realised those setbacks saved me for the one opportunity that was right for me. In April 1997, I met with a headhunter who changed my life. R. Kelly's song, I Believe I Can Fly, was on the radio the morning I set out for my job interview with a small portfolio management firm. I started my first proper job as assistant fund manager on... 19th of May, 1997, just over six years after I first came to England. True to my quest to find a job for life, I stayed with the same firm for 18 years. Motherhood. I remember being asked in my job interview if I might be starting a family in the next year or two. My interviewer explained that although this would be a happy development for me, It would be a disaster for a small company like theirs to lose me so soon after my appointment. Such a question would spark outrage in the current politically correct environment and be thoroughly condemned as being sexist. But in all honesty, I was glad my interviewer had asked me so that I could answer with candour. It was much better to have it out in the open than for him to harbour doubts about this and deny me the job because of it. I told him how long I had waited to find the right career path and so having a baby was furthest from my mind now that I had this opportunity. Thankfully, he believed me and the job was mine to keep. When we were expecting our first child in 2000, my husband and I discussed at length the best way forward. We were both in demanding jobs with little chance of either working part-time or from home. We didn't have family nearby who we could rely on and leaving our baby with a complete stranger while we were out at work seemed unfair. In addition, professional childcare was, and still is, hugely expensive. The idea of giving up the job that I was thriving in made me sad, but I would have done it had there been no other option. My husband did a wonderful thing for me. He offered to quit his career and stay at home full-time to look after our baby. His reasoning was that he had been working for over 20 years, and he was happy to take a break. I, on the other hand, had only just begun my career, and he believed I had a lot further to rise. He had also been a hands-on father with his first child, and knew more about babies and their needs than I did as a first-time mum. Knowing our daughter was in her father's good hands every single day made it easier for me to leave home before anyone else was awake and return in the evening after spending a full and productive day at work. He continued to be the full-time parent to both our children for 15 years. Work-life balance. Being in a full-time job with increasing levels of responsibility was sometimes stressful and I never could completely switch off. But I did my best not to bring my work home, so the precious hours I spent with my family were theirs alone. Once I was home, the kids were my responsibility. Homework, bath time, reading to them at bedtime and staying with them until they fell asleep were my ways of keeping the bond alive. I loved those hours when my daughter would talk to me about her day at school, the friendships she had made and lost and made again, her little battles on the playground or the kindness another child had bestowed upon her. My son was less chatty and the reasons for that became clear to us when he was about four years old. He was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. His speech was very delayed and to this day he is far less likely to volunteer information about his day at school. Fund management has always been a male-dominated industry but unlike some women in the city I was a sole breadwinner for my family and that made me think like a man. I enjoyed my work and was good at it but it was not always easy. I promised myself that I would stay in the job for as long as I had new things to learn and woke up each day looking forward to what lay in store for me. In 2014, there was a perfect storm of events in my personal life and at work. My children were growing up, the connection I had with them when they were much younger needed to be replaced with something more relevant to their needs now they were older. Being at home for so long was having a detrimental impact on my husband. He needed to get out there and find a new reason to get up every morning. In addition, I started to feel stifled in my workplace So the decision to quit never felt more right. Life after work. The early days of being a full-time stay-at-home mum were bliss. No more alarm clocks going off at some ungodly hour. No more fumbling through the wardrobe in the dark so as to not disturb the rest of the family who were still asleep. No more daily commute on the train service that broke down when there were leaves on the track or we had the wrong kind of snow. I loved being able to wake my kids up, make them breakfast and walk my younger one to school in what was his final year of primary school. We would talk about the colours in the sky, the sound of chirping birds and other little things that matter when you're a child. Some days we would walk in silence, occasionally speaking to greet a friend who was also heading towards the school. It is one of many things I am so grateful for. Having the chance to spend those months walking my son to and from school and learning things about his life that I never previously had. Once back home, I would zone in on household chores with gusto as I found washing dishes and cleaning therapeutic. The hours stretched in front of me like a fresh piece of parchment waiting for me to fill in as I chose. I soon found myself projects to work on, things I knew I would not have The chance to do once I was back at work. I started to cook more and trained to become a hoop dance fitness teacher. I had more time for friends and family. Most of all, it was an opportunity to simply take a break from the life I had known for so long. I gained a newfound respect for anyone who is a stay at home parent. The hardest thing about being at home all day is that although you seem to have the whole day to yourself, There are endless chores and need doing that you don't get paid for. Just because you no longer have a job does not mean you are not working. I discovered that it made sense not to have everything in perfect order all the time, so the family would notice when the house was clean and tidy. As the months have worn on, jobs around the house have lost their therapeutic quality. As they have slid back into just being chores, Working life for me used to be an unending series of deadlines. Some were preset, but a number simply cropped up and demanded to be met. Despite days when nothing went to plan, I am proud to say that I never missed an important deadline at work. Now that I am at home, I have the freedom to choose what I do, when I do it, and if I do it at all on any given day. I occasionally miss the buzz of the externally created drama and the sense of not knowing what might happen next. But most of all, I missed the deadlines. With that realisation, I knew I was ready to find my next challenge, feeling refreshed, renewed, and with my sore sharpened. A new challenge, one where I could create my own deadlines, at least to begin with, and become my own boss. Writing this book is the first really important step, towards that goal. As I said before, this book was written in 2016 and so much has happened in this world since then. If you enjoyed that chapter um, and you want to read more and you want to read uh, the stories of the other amazing women in the book, then you can buy a copy. It's available on Amazon and most other online retailers. You can also buy it direct from me, especially if you're based in the UK or in Europe, you can go to my website to see how you can do that. Anyway, thank you for listening and I will be back again with another interesting conversation very soon. Bye-bye.